Good morning again. Please turn with me, in, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Acts 15, 36 through 16, 5 will be our sermon text for this morning. And uh, before we read that together, would you pray with me? Our Father, we come before you again to hear from you, to hear your word. Uh, we come to be fed by you. We pray, Father, that as we, as we look at this passage of Scripture, that you would be with us by your Spirit, that you would feed us by your Spirit, that you would point us to your Son, uh, that you would show us your grace, remind us of your love, and uh, encourage us and transform us and send us out of here changed people. Uh, because we have met with you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Well, relationships are messy. Uh, there are ups and there are downs. There are moments of intimacy and love and fellowship. There are times when we feel like we connect with another individual. And then there are moments of anger and frustration and distance and even hatred. There are times when you feel like you can be vulnerable and open and honest, emotionally and spiritually naked before another human being. And there are times when you feel like you have to be guarded and closed and hidden and covered. Sometimes it feels easier just to run away and to avoid relationships and to avoid people altogether. Sometimes it feels easier to do life on your own. Well, the church, being made up of a group of people who have relationships with one another, is really the same kind of mess Though we are hopefully moving toward love and fellowship and openness and honesty, we're not always there. Some decide just to opt out of the church altogether. But uh, what we've seen in the book of Acts is that Jesus' mission is to build his church. 
that's what Jesus said back, back in the book of Matthew. Uh, Jesus is building his church on the rock of the apostolic confession. Which means that we, if we are Christians, church life is not optional. Now, by God's grace, uh, up to this point in the life of our church, we have been a relatively controversy-free body. Uh, nevertheless, we're still messy. Uh, life is messy. Relationships are messy. Uh, all souls, too, is messy. Uh, that's not a disparagement on all souls or us or you or me, uh, but it's just the fact of life between the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the coming again of Jesus on the last day. We are a people who are broken and yet in process. And sometimes we feel our messiness so much, either as individuals or as a church, uh, we begin to ask, how can God use us? I mean, how, as messed up as we are, as, as confused as we are, as ignorant as we are, as broken as we are, as imperfect as we are, how can God, how can his work go forward through us as a church? Can God, will God use me, use us, use our church in this condition? You know, my first uh, response to that question is, uh, well, what other condition is there? We will not be perfect until glory, and if God won't use us as we are, he won't use us at all. And yet our Father is more patient than that, isn't he? He's more merciful, more gracious than that. He will use us in this in-between state. And yet as we, as we look through the scriptures, we find there are some things that we can do to sort of put ourselves in his hands to be used, so to speak. So I want, us to, I want to give us some, some simple things in light of our text for, for what we can do. Uh, if, if God is to use us as a church to further his mission. Uh, now, it's important to remember, as we've talked about in the book of Acts, that, that the book of Acts is not simply a manual for doing church. You know, many Christians think about Acts as sort of the glory days of the church, and they see our goal as simply getting back to Acts. Uh, that's not quite right. Um, the, the reason is uh, laying the foundation of a building is not the same thing as building upon it. Laying a foundation tends to consist of digging holes and pouring concrete, but for most of our homes, the building part consisted of hammers and nails and wood, and, and later on, eventually, wallboard and spackle and paint. Uh, now, if you used wallboard and spackle for the foundation, you would have some serious trouble. And yet, you don't need to keep re-pouring concrete either. And so the apostles in the book of Acts are laying the foundation of the church and we build upon it. We must build on the foundation that has already been laid. And yet building on that foundation does involve some imitation of the apostles themselves. How do we know that? Well, because Paul, uh, after describing his evangelistic method, says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul specifically calls us to imitate him that many may be saved. 1 Corinthians 10.33. And so what can we learn about Paul's sort of church growth strategy here that is for every believer in every time and every place and every church? Now, if you are in here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're wondering, why do I want to hear about Paul's church growth strategy? Uh, well, the answer is, in, is this. 
at least in part, it gives us a glimpse into the gospel itself. See, every aspect of church life revolves around the gospel. And that's no less true of our methods as it is true of our message. And so our outline this morning, you can see it in the back of your bulletin. Uh, There are four points. We're going to talk about uh, adoring the church, entering the mess, adapting your strategy, and entrusting the growth to God. Adoring the church, enter the mess, adapt your strategy, and entrust the growth to God. First, adore the church. Now, you might not think that the church is adorable. Uh, That's not quite what I mean. Uh, Look at chapter 15, verse 36, though. Chapter 15, 36. uh, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Notice first Paul's concern for the churches that he planted. Paul had this deep concern for the church. He he wanted to visit the churches. He had just recently planted. It may may have been a year or more, uh, but he wanted to visit them to see how they are. And this, as you read through the New Testament, you find this is a common theme in Paul's letters, his love and concern for the churches, his desire to visit them. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's like four times in that one sentence he he talks about his love and affection for the Philippian church. Paul says he longed to visit the church at Rome. And he longed to see the Thessalonians. In fact, when Paul talks about all of the trials that he had undergone, he ends with this, what seems to be the the, the strongest trial of all. In 2 Corinthians 11, 28, he says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, Paul had this deep concern for the church. His his concern and his love for the church, of course, flowed out of, according to Philippians 1.8, the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul loved the church because Jesus loves the church. And despite our mess and despite our failings, despite our sin and our squabbling, Jesus loves the church. He has a a deep abiding concern for his church. That's why the scriptures say there is no greater love than this than to lay down your life for your friends. And that is what Jesus did at the cross. He gave up his life in our place for our sins. He took our sin that we might have his righteousness. He he gave up his life. He died for us that we might live through him. And now Jesus calls us to love one another, to have a deep concern for one another. John 13 Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so the, the, the first point is simply this, right? Love the church, right? As Jesus loved the church, as Paul, following Jesus, loved the church, love the church, And yet, you you might say, uh, the church is a mess, 
Right? Uh, the church is full of selfish, sinful people who have competing agendas, who never seem to get along. I'm not saying our church is like that, but you know, the church in general. We're always fighting over obscure theological principles and, and worship styles. Church is full of awkward relationships and, and nosy people. I love the church. Some of us avoid it whenever possible. How can I love the church? And that brings us to the second point. So first, adore the church. Second, enter the mess. This is how we love people. This is how we love the church. Uh, you know, sometimes no sooner do we express our good intentions than our sin rears its ugly head. And the best of men and women are still in battle against sin every day. In fact, it is the best of men and women who are really in battle against sin every day. And so it was with Paul, right? No sooner does he show concern for the church than he gets in a fight with his fellow missionary. We read about it in verses 37 to 40. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, there are a lot of questions about this breakup, and we do need to avoid a couple of things. We need to, to avoid speculating too much about what was going on here. What are, what are the details that are left unsaid? We need to avoid demonizing one side or the other. Uh, Luke doesn't take sides between Paul and Barnabas, and we shouldn't either. And uh, we also need to avoid, ex avoid excusing or minimizing this disagreement, which is a, certainly a temptation for some. And so let me say first that this was actually, a, this was a real fight. Uh, verse 39 says it was a sharp disagreement. Uh, that word uh, has sort of connotations of, of being stirred up to passion. Acts 17.6 uses uh, the, the similar word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Or 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Love is not irritable. Same word. Or the King James Version says, Love is not easily provoked. Or the NIV says, Love is not easily angered. And so this was not uh, just a dispassionate, level-headed, quiet conversation. Whatever it looked like, and of course we don't know, but they were stirred up to passion on different sides of the issue. And, you know, the hardest kind of disagreement is uh, when both sides have a point. And we don't know why Mark turned back. Was it, was it theological, right? Did, did he have questions about ministry to the Gentiles? Was it medical? Did he come down with an illness and, and was unable to press on? Was it personal? Had he become afraid of the dangers of the journey or, or the anticipated opposition that they would face? Was he bothered by Paul taking the, the lead when Barnabas, Mark's cousin, by the way, was the senior member of the party? Uh, did he just have second thoughts about mission work? We don't know why P Mark turned back. Uh, and, and here is where we, we shouldn't speculate. We don't know. Here's what we do know. Uh, we know why Paul did not want to bring Mark along. Verse 38 tells us. Verse 38 says, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them 
in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, the word for withdraw is actually the Greek word from which we derive the English word apostasy. Uh, now, the word's not always used negatively in Scripture. Sometimes it, it can be used positively. Uh, so Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19, uh, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Right? There, there is a positive use of that word. Uh, but it's also uh, used negatively sometimes. In Hebrews 3, it's used negatively. Also, in the parable of the sower, uh, Luke 8.13 Jesus said that the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And so Paul, it seems, attributes to Mark some kind of falling away. He, he departed from us. He, he withdrew from the work. He gave up. Now, maybe Paul was being too harsh. We don't know. But it seems that he views this withdrawal as some kind of a failure on Mark's part. Of course, Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Maybe Paul was thinking, Mark put his hand to the plow and then he turned around and went home. Maybe Paul was thinking, Mark is just unreliable. We can't trust him to continue with us. We, we don't know either way, though. Paul is not ready to give him a second chance because he withdrew from the work. He left. So we know Paul's reasoning, reasoning, at least a little bit of it. Uh, we also know Barnabas's character. Right? Think about Barnabas. Uh, remember the first time we met Barnabas in the book of Acts? It was in Acts chapter 4. Do you remember what he was doing? He was selling a field and bringing the money to the apostles for the needy in the church. In fact, Barnabas's name is not Barnabas. Barnabas's real name was Joseph. And the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And the next time we meet Barnabas is soon uh, afterwards, or soon after Paul's conversion. Uh, Paul is trying to meet with the disciples in Jerusalem, but of course they're all afraid of him because of his past uh, uh, life. And Barnabas goes to Paul, takes him, and brings him to the, apostle, the apostles. See, Barnabas is this sacrificial, encouraging guy who's willing to stick up for others even when everyone else tries to keep their distance. He's this quiet, gracious character in church history, always ready to give of himself for others, always ready to think the best and give people the benefit of the doubt, even for Paul. Barnabas had, had been uh, with Paul through a lot, right? Uh, he, he preached with Paul. He was persecuted with Paul. He started out as, as sort of the senior member of the group, but eventually, Paul clearly came to take the lead. You actually see that subtly in the book of Acts, uh, whereas initially when they're together, they're called Barnabas and Paul. But as you read through the book of Acts, eventually it becomes Paul and Barnabas. There's this transition of who's the leader in the group, and Barnabas seems okay with that. But now Barnabas is being Barnabas, right? And he wants to give Mark another chance. He's ready to be this son of encouragement again, and he's not willing to take no for an answer. Now, I don't know how this episode should have ended. Uh, and truth be told, uh, we don't really know that it ended poorly. Uh, we don't know that, that they stormed out of the room and never talked again. That's not what we're told. Uh, in fact, some say they agreed to disagree and parted ways. Others think that Paul probably said some things he, he regretted years later, and that when he wrote the, the words, uh, be angry but do not sin, he wrote those with a little bit of regret about what he said to Barnabas. Again, we don't know. 
All of these are different ways people have kind of read into it and tried to figure out what's going on. But what we do know is that years later, Paul speaks highly of both Barnabas and Mark in his letters. And so whatever level of rift there might have been, they do eventually work these things through. But here's what we need to see at the moment. As we wrestle through this passage or think through this passage, Luke could have just left this out. It would have been a lot easier. And he didn't have to mention the disagreement. He could have just said, and Paul and Silas went on and Barnabas and Mark went a different direction. He didn't have to say there was this strong disagreement that caused them to separate. But he does. He mentions it. And even as we try to romanticize the early church, Luke is not in the practice of whitewashing church history. Really, that's been true throughout Acts already, right? There has been deception at times and false converts and greed and arguments, division since the beginning. And now we have an argument between the first pair of missionaries. What do we do with this mess? You know, if we try to present the church as a picture of perfection, people will see through it. That's where the charge of hypocrisy often comes from. But first, we need to then accept the mess, right? We need to admit that the church and, truth be told, us as individuals, right, are, are broken. We're not what we should be. We need to accept the reality of where we are in history between the cross of Christ and the return of Christ, between Pentecost and the parousia, right? That's the, the New Testament word that often refers to the coming again of, of Jesus, right? We're between those times, which means we are in process Spirit has been given. He's working in us to transform us into the image of Jesus, but we are not yet perfect. And so we will experience stubborn disagreement with one another at times in the church. What we find in Acts is flawed people doing flawed ministry. And guess what? That's the only way ministry can be done at this period in time. And so we need to accept the mess. And yet more than that, we need to enter into it. Uh, here's what I mean. It's so easy to stand on the sidelines and criticize the church. And look at how messed up they are. Right? They think they're so great, but they're a mess. Look at their theology, their community, their music, their whatever. That's not what love does, though. Love, love enters into the mess of another and gets its hands dirty. Uh, so we love the church. And yet we're not, we're not Twitter-pated teenagers, right? Uh, we don't see the church through rose-colored glasses. We aren't unaware of her flaws and weaknesses because, of course, after all, her flaws and weaknesses are really our flaws and weaknesses lived out in community. And so we accept them, we admit them, we confess them, we seek to overcome them, but we never deny them or ignore them or sweep them under the rug. Rather, we enter into the mess. We get our hands dirty. Right? Church is not a spectator sport. What does that mean? It means you're willing to enter into relationships with flawed people, sinful people, broken people, people who will sin against you, people who might embarrass you, people who might annoy you or disagree with you and maybe even betray you. And yet you're willing to do that because they're people for whom Jesus died. They're people whom Jesus loves because they are your brothers and sisters through Christ. And it's through entering into the, the mess of relationships that Jesus works in us, through us. He works in each of us, through each of us, as we wrestle together and try to do the Christian life together. 
Now, if that, if that bugs you, right, if you, if you uh, have trouble dealing with the brokenness of the church or the mess of the church, let me encourage you to, again, consider the gospel. The gospel is that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The gospel is not that Christ loved her once she got her stuff together. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is that Christ entered into our mess, that he became sin for us, that he became a curse in our place, that he took our guilt, our shame, our condemnation. And sometimes we, we think of love as, as mere sympathy, right? Uh, you know, you, you see someone stuck in a muddy ditch and you think, man, I'm really sorry that you're down there. That looks really horrible. I, I really hope you can find a way out. Maybe I can throw you a rope or maybe I can go get some help. But Jesus sees us in the muddy ditch of our sin and he climbs down in the ditch and he gets his hands and his feet covered in the muck of life. He puts us on, a sh us on his shoulders and he lifts us out. Right? That, that's, that's, that's him going to the cross. Him bearing our sin. His, quote, getting his hands dirty for us. And so uh, adore the church, love it. Be willing, love it by being willing to enter into the mess of of church life, of relationships, of people. Third, adapt your strategy. Uh, Paul chooses Silas as his fellow missionary, and he heads out from Antioch. Barnabas and, and Mark sail west to Cyprus. Paul and Silas head north on foot through Syria and Cilicia. And, uh, and notice verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so as Paul travels, he's meeting with these different churches from town to town, uh, that he and Barnabas had planted together, and he comes upon a disciple named Timothy. And maybe Timothy and his mother were converted on Paul's first missionary journey through. Uh, maybe they had become Christians since then by the, the witness of the church there. We don't know. But uh, there's something a little bit odd about Timothy. Uh, his mother was a Jewish believer, and his father was a Greek. His father was not Jewish and apparently not a believer. In fact, some people believe that his father wasn't even alive at this point since he's not mentioned in the story. Now, that would be odd enough, having a Jewish mother and a Greek father, because Jews were forbidden to intermarry with unclean Gentiles. But what's more, Timothy was not circumcised. Now, circumcision was the sign of membership in the Old Covenant community, right? It was a sign of your Jewishness. It was a sign of God's promises. And Paul does something that's unexpected here. He has Timothy circumcised. It's unexpected because it seems contradictory because of the very last chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 15. You have the Jerusalem council uh, that said circumcision was not necessary. Paul in Galatians, which was probably already written by this point, says if you seek circumcision, you are severed from Christ. Paul refused to have Titus, a Gentile, circumcised despite pressure from Jewish Christians to that end. So why in the world does Paul reverse, seemingly, everything that he's been saying so far and have Timothy circumcised? Well, a couple of things that we should note. The first is, Timothy was Jewish. He was not a Gentile. 
he would have been considered Jewish uh, by his Jewish contemporaries because his mother was Jewish, so he was Jewish. Which means this is not a matter of requiring Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be Christians, uh, but it's about has something to do with Jewish culture. But second, notice what we're told in verse 3. We're told Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, now, Paul's concern here is not believing Jews. His, his worry is not Christians, Jewish Christians, or Luke would have qualified them as believers, as he often does. He just says, because of the Jews who were in that area. So these are not believing Jews, but unbelieving Jews that Paul is concerned about. So why would that be his concern? Well, remember Paul's missionary strategy. What does he do when he gets to a town? What's his, his, the first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue. Now, if Paul had an uncircumcised Jew with him, there is no way he would get one foot in a synagogue. No way that the people would even begin to listen to him. Luke tells us everyone knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. In fact, it may have been that Timothy and his mom were our kind of pariah, right? I mean, here you have a Jewish woman married to a Gentile man. The whole Jewish community would have looked down on that relationship. And then, maybe because his dad wouldn't allow it, we don't know, Timothy was not circumcised. Which means Timothy, according to the Old Testament law, was to be cut off from the community. But Timothy had become a Christian, and apparently, pariah or not, his mom and grandma had taught him uh, the Hebrew Scriptures from a young age. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says, from childhood, Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings. And, and so he knew the Scriptures. He was well thought of by all the believers in that area, according to verse 2. So Paul sees something in this young man, and he wants to take him under his wing and mentor him. And so he has him circumcised because of the Jews. Again, Paul's reasoning, reasoning is not to capitulate to sort of legalistic Jewish Christians who demanded Gentile Christians to fulfill the law to be saved. That's not his reasoning at all. His goal was not to offend non-Christian Jews over what Paul saw as ultimately a non-issue. He didn't want to offend them before they can even hear the gospel. See, this was an evangelistic move on Paul's part. It's the same one that he expresses in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, To the Jews he became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And to those under the law he became as one under the law. To those outside the law he became as one outside the law. To the weak he became weak. In fact, he became all things to all people that by all means he might save some. He did it, he says, for the sake of the gospel. And so what motivates Paul's approach is he does everything for the sake of the gospel. To the Jew, he becomes a Jew for the sake of the gospel, even circumcising Timothy to cause no offense. To the Christian who, who wants to impose circumcision as a requirement for salvation, he steadfastly condemns the practice to protect the truth of the gospel. What's Paul's goal in both cases? It's the furtherance of the gospel. That's what he cares about. Paul is concerned about reaching the lost. And, and now he doesn't have a flexible gospel, right? His message is not flexible, but he does have flexible strategies. To the Jew, a Jew. To those outside the law is one outside the law. And, and though his strategies change, it's, it's not mere pragmatism either. He's not just saying, hey, whatever works, just to get it done. The, the unchanging gospel of grace, right, is the principle that guides him as he seeks to reach the lost. How can I most communicate the truths of the gospel in this situation? 
And it's really because that the gospel doesn't change, Paul must change to communicate that gospel clearly in differing circumstances. And so, too, we must be willing to adapt our strategy, not our gospel, but our strategy, so as to communicate that unchanging gospel clearly. And so we might ask questions like, what is it that this person is likely to misunderstand about the gospel? And how can I speak and live so as to clearly articulate that biblical principle in this time and place? Which means we have to be creative and flexible as we seek to minister according to Scripture in line with the principle of the gospel to the changing circumstances around us. And what's the goal? The goal is to overcome obstacles as we pursue the lost or to overcome obstacles but without losing the gospel. And so what might that look like? I mean, there are some obvious ones, aren't there? Uh, it, it might make a difference on how uh, we talk about alcohol as a church. Right? Uh, we want to maintain the gospel and the freedom that we have in Christ. But we don't want to confuse a non-believer who might misinterpret freedom as license, which is not in line with the gospel. But we also don't want to communicate an unbiblical asceticism or a gospel which denies the goodness of creation. And so, the, which of those two principles is more important to communicate at the moment, uh, the lack of license or the, the goodness of creation, may depend on the person standing in front of you. What do they need to hear in this moment? It might make a difference in what music we use in worship. Right? Music is culturally conditioned. Uh, you wouldn't take an organ into Zimbabwe. Now, you still want music that clearly communicates the gospel, but inasmuch as multiple forms might communicate that, we are free to adapt to the culture at hand as needed. Might make a difference in what clothing we wear. Right? Again, uh, a suit and tie probably wouldn't be appropriate for, for a mission among tribal peoples, but it also might not be appropriate for a laid-back culture in Miami, Florida. See, there, there are things we communicate through our clothing. But the truth is, what is communicated through what clothes changes from circumstance to circumstance. So the gospel and, and clear, the clear communication of the gospel, uh, together, of course, with all of Scripture, is what guides us as we think through some of these kinds of questions. How am I going to communicate the gospel in this circumstance to these people? So we need to love the church, enter the mess of the church, adapt our strategies to the circumstances so that we can clearly communicate the unchanging gospel. Fourth, we entrust the growth to God. Sometimes when we talk about steps and strategies and such things, we begin to think that we cause the church to grow. But that's not the case. Uh, and, and here's how Paul puts it elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And so uh, look at verses 4 and 5, the last two verses in our passage this morning. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. That ver last verse there is similar uh, to other summaries of the church's growth in the book of Acts. Acts 6-7 says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts 12.24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And, and what we see throughout the book of Acts then is, is a story of multiplication. The church is growing. The word of God is increasing and multiplying. That is, it is bearing fruit. The word, like a seed, is, is planted and bears fruit in the hearts and minds of people. But as Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. And here's why this is such good news, right? What this means, on the one hand, is that effective in ministry, effectiveness in ministry does not depend on our being sinless. Right? Paul was not sinless. Church life was, is, and will continue to be, until Jesus' return, messy. But despite their flawed nature, despite our flawed and fallen nature, God gives the growth. Our hope is in Him. God blesses the ministry of His sinful, broken children as they seek to be faithful to Him. But second, it also means that effectiveness in ministry is not ultimately dependent on our strategies either. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. What does that mean? Well, in part it means we don't have to get it all right. We don't have to figure everything out. We seek to be faithful, planting and watering as we're able. Uh, we plant or water as God has called us to plant and water, but then we, we wait for God to give the growth. And some of us need to be reminded, right, think through your strategy. Are you becoming a Jew to the Jew and a Greek to the Greek? And what does that even look like in our circumstances? But most of us need to be reminded, look, it's not all on your shoulders. It's not up to you. You're not going to convert anyone. The Holy Spirit does that. Yes, you're going to get some things wrong, but that won't stop God. That doesn't mean that he can't or won't use you. Put your trust in him and not in getting everything right. And of course, as we think about these things, it's the gospel that models all of this for us. It's Jesus that did all of these things first. Jesus, out of his love for the church, comes into our world. He adapts himself to our circumstances by taking on humanity. He takes on not just our humanity, but our brokenness. Without any of his own, he accepts the mess of his church. He takes it on himself. He suffers in our place. And he gives up his life entrusting himself to God. Of course, he was rewarded with the resurrection. And his resurrection becomes the promise, then, of our fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in ministry becomes us giving of ourselves and trusting ourselves and trusting our work and trusting our fruit to God again and again and again. Knowing that as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, so our work, as we sacrificially give of ourselves, loving others, entering into their mess, flexibly preaching the unchanging gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, knowing our work is not in vain in the resurrected Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us, help us to, to trust you. Help us to know that our work is not in vain in the Lord. Help us to know that as he rose from the dead, so, uh, so we will bear fruit in this life and in the life to come as we serve you. Our work is not empty. It is not fruitless. It is not meaningless in you. Help us to trust you for that. Help us to rest in you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.